0: This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website, radiomariaengland.uk for more details and a full schedule of programmes.
1: And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.
2: Hello, I'm Di Redmond and I'm your host for today's Songs in the Wilderness. In this programme, we listen to the songs that have affected and influenced our guests throughout their life and have influenced their faith too. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Richard Harris, director of Carrot House Westminster, the social action agency of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Westminster. Richard, welcome. I know you're in the London studio. It's absolutely lovely to have you on the programme.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me onto the programme.
2: Well, well, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, is it pouring down in London?
0: It was very miserable on my way here. Yeah, it's pretty grim
2: here. So we'll come to the fascinating subject of your challenging job later. I mean, what a job. Uh, but for now, can you tell us about your early life growing up? It seems to me like all over the world, Jamaica, Thailand, Papua New Guinea... Tanzania, Mexico. How did that come about, Richard?
0: Yes, it's quite quite an itinerary, isn't it? I mean, uh, my childhood in the tropics started really quite by chance. Uh, My father uh, had been working at the Glasshouse Crops Research Institute in Littlehampton in West Sussex. Um, specializing in tomato breeding of all things. He was partly responsible for the first ever commercial red and yellow striped tomato. So that's something we treasure in our family.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, big deal, I'd say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and purely by chance, he he saw a job advert um to go and work for the Coconut Industry Board in Kingston, Jamaica. You know, in the tropics, coconut is a major cash crop and it's a mainstay for lots of smallhold farmers. So ensuring that it, breeding is done properly is really important. He saw this opportunity. I mean, obviously he had no specialism in coconut, but by chance, the person who'd end up being his boss happened to be passing through England at the time, hmm. interviewed him and and gave him the job. And so, uh, lo and behold, he and my mother and my brother uh, took the returning banana boat, literally the returning banana boat Goodness. from London back down to Kingston. Um, and you know, what followed uh, was a career working in the tropics, which not a bad life, really. I, I, I envy him. I sometimes wonder I didn't follow in his own, his footsteps, really.
2: So you must have grown up basically just saturated in sunshine and and a whole different, a whole different world from what you live in now. Colour and culture and language and history. That's your background.
0: You know, it's so strange, especially on a day like today when it's pouring with rain because of course in jamaica when it pours with rain you run outside and play because it's great (laughs) maybe not in hurricane season but but yeah and i always have this very fond memory of Um, making Christmas cards when we were in Jamaica. And we'd use cotton wool for snow on the cards. stick it onto the card. So I had this idea that snow was somehow soft and warm and fluffy. fluffy. (laughs) Not not cold and wet and hard. (laughs) And relentless. And relentless.
2: So after these idyllic days, um, then finally, you attended boarding school in Dorset. Um, is, Is that right? You went, that must have been a bit of a culture shock, wasn't it?
0: It it really was, actually. Um, My father, got his next job was in Thailand um, in a place called Trumphorn, which is very far from the capital. There were no English schools nearby. So, yes, I had to come to boarding school in Dorset. And um, I've got to say, actually, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, it it was wonderful. It was very... very like a Billy Bunter experience. I know that's not everyone's experience in boarding school, especially if you don't come from a wealthy family, and I certainly didn't. But it was great, actually. But there was a culture shock, yeah. yeah a but, definitely a culture shock.
2: What do you mean a Billy Bunter experience? Was it all sort of Chelsea buns and lashing of ginger beer and stuff
0: like that? I, it sort sure of was. I mean, you know, we, we had buns uh, at break time and uh, crazy exploits and fun at the tuck shop. It was all, yeah. It was it was nice, but it was a culture shock. There's no doubt about that. People thought perhaps I was North American because of my Jamaican accent, oh, and I did believe it or not, I did have a Jamaican accent in those days, and they couldn't understand my handwriting. So lots of retraining to be done.
2: And and also you talk about learning to appreciate Newman, I can't even say numinous theology in, in in relation to your hymn singing. What does that mean, Richard?
0: Well, yes. Yeah, so so. You know, at boarding school, you know, you'll, you'll typically have a short church service every morning right, uh, and yeah. a service obviously on Sunday, and then on Saturday, it'll be choir practice. So Christianity just felt like a very natural, obvious part of, of my daily existence. And I was confirmed as an Anglican at age 11. It, it happened. Uh-huh. Um, but it would be fair to say that I didn't really have uh, a proper formation, certainly not in the way that we understand it as Catholics. And, and for me, in, in so many ways, it was hymn singing that taught me the really important lessons of our faith. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I think on numinous theology, I think it was a the German uh, theologian, Rudolf Otto, who first coined the idea of the numinous. And that's, you know, those rational aspects of the sacred, um, sorry, non-rational aspects of the sacred, the things you can't articulate in language and meaning that are absolutely central and foundational to, to religious experience. And, and so for me, it was a combination of the words and the music in a really great hymn that has the power to take me, out of the everyday, and show me something more, something deeper.
2: Well, that's extraordinary. I mean, it's it's quite profound what you're saying that 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 the the the, the, the aspects of the sacred that are foundational to religious experience. I, that's really sort of, you know, deeply philosophical and pretty obscure. But it came to you through music.
0: It absolutely came to me through music, and of course, there are many routes to faith, aren't there? And and this this was mine. And I'd say it was it was that that early experience of hymn singing. And there are some beautiful, mm. beautiful hymns, aren't there? That 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 taught me so much that perhaps I wasn't being taught formally.
2: Well, actually, this is the perfect segue into you introducing your very first choice, which is actually a completely adorable choice. I love it. Tell us why <laughs> it's so important
0: to you it's it's kind of you to say it's adorable. Um it's actually it actually goes back to my primary school days in Jamaica and it's a somewhat simpler piece of music. music. It, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam yeah. and you know, there's no there's no <laughs> complex numerous theology here. It's just a direct message. Go forth and, and glorify the Lord by your life.
2: Let's hear your first choice. Jesus
3: wants me for a sunbeam to shine for him each day. And always shine for Him I'll be a sunbeam for Jesus I can if I but try
2: Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, sung by the Three Ds. So, Richard Harris from Caritas, Westminster. You leave school and you move on to college. Was your faith strong at that time or were you struggling?
0: Well, I mean, I I fear my faith had completely slipped away by the time I had arrived at college. You know, if I was a confirmed Anglican by age 11, then I was a confirmed atheist by age 16.
2: Goodness that's quite radical. Well I suppose it's not actually it's typical that that age group either you go for it or you drift.
0: I think I think that's right. I mean this was slightly before the era of new atheism but you know there was nothing to to hold me and that poor formation I had didn't give me much to cling on to. So yes I absolutely mm. just drifted.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then your work—I mean, that must have been incredibly demanding. You went on—you joined the civil service as an operational researcher, problem-solving in the prison service. That's pretty full-on.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so I graduated from college with a degree in mathematics, um, and and that you know I was fully bought into that sort of materialist view of the world, scientism at its worst, really. And so yes, I became what's called an operational researcher, which is you know the application of mathematics to management and operational problems. And my role was to apply logic to the way that prisons were run and the way that prisoners were treated. As if um, rehabilitation was largely a matter of just optimising a formula, rather than perhaps speaking to someone's heart. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you worked with the team. Did
2: you have a lot of interface with the prisoners and, and getting their POV on life in prison?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I did a project about allowing prisoners to wear their own clothes in prison rather than a prison uniform. This was something that happened after the Strange Ways riots, for those old enough to to remember that. And that involved going onto the wings and talking to the prisoners about using laundries on the wing as opposed to a central laundry. Um, And, you know, uh, obviously, you know, I'd be there with, with prison staff as well, but no, it was it was fairly full on. And
2: did you uh, at that time of, of rehabilitation, uh, if 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 this is the right time to talk about it, mm. did you did you find that you could speak to people's hearts? So were people too hardened <laughs> to even want to talk to you?
0: It was a very strange time, Di. I mean, there, there was this arms race going on between the two major political parties about who could be tougher on crime and prisons, and that really had an impact on the way that prisoners were treated. It became it became very transactional, um, and I think that, that, that's a real shame. But then, you know, it's always been difficult. Rehabilitation, you know, we're called to, to, to support those in prison, but rehabilitation has always been very difficult. It's, a, it's very much a personal choice, and uh, my experience is that there isn't some sort of simple... Intervention that you can just apply to all prisons of a certain type and it fixes them. You know, it has to be an individual choice, so it's worth doing, but it's very difficult from a, from a management point of view, I suppose.
2: Vast. It's a, yeah, it's a vast subject. But but then, um, the, you actually uh, shortly afterwards you retrained as an economist and ended up working in Whitehall. It sounds like you just you just like taking on big
0: ventures. <laughs> well, yes, but you know. I'll let you and our listeners into a dirty secret, which is: it, it turns out that if you can do mathematics, then getting a master's degree in economics is, is not particularly hard. Well, <laughs> um,
2: you'd have to convince me about
0: that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, some people would actually say that's exactly what's wrong with the economics profession these days: that it's all about numbers and not about what motivates people and 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 to you know participate in, in the world around them. But in, in my case, you know, it was a route to becoming an economist, and through that, a promotion and and becoming more exposed to, to policy making as you say, in Whitehall, and eventually to becoming a, a senior civil servant.
2: And this was the time of New Labour, which must have been quite a giddy, exciting time, or did that not actually filter down to you?
0: Oh, no, no, it really did. I mean, it, it's hard to capture the excitement around 1997 when New Labour were coming in. Um, but there was such an anticipation uh, for a different way of doing things uh, from the 80s and 90s. And, you know, when Le- Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, you know, it, it seemed that like all the old problems could be could be sorted and swept away through investment and modernisation.
2: It, it was a, so It was a dream. It was such a wonderful sort of Camelot dream that not not a fantasy, but that there could be a rebuilding of of a, a society with better ideals and principles. What was it like working with David
0: Blunkett? Oh, it was fascinating. And I, I should say, of course, you know, Labour at the time did achieve many great things. the Introduction mm. of the national living mm. wage, minimum wage and improving schools and hospitals. It was wonderful. But yes, I was lucky enough to work with David Blunkett when he was Home Secretary. on what, what he called civil renewal, this idea that um, the state shouldn't do everything, that actually what you want is a state working with local communities in collaboration to solve local problems. It's very similar to work I later did with David Miliband when he was still in government, and yeah. what he called double devolution—the idea that central government should devolve power to local government, and yes. local government should devolve it down to, to local communities—and
2: then did David Cameron pick that up? Well, with as as you mentioned, the Big Society.
0: Well, he did because I mean Gordon Brown was a huge figure behind all of this as well, mm. and David Cameron, as leader of the opposition, then obviously realised you know he needs to focus on what Gordon Brown was interested in, um, and and so. I think that was probably the seed of the idea of the, of the big society, and the big society, in my view, was a very well-intentioned uh, ambition to try and transform the way we see civil society. Mm-hmm. It's just that it arrived at exactly the wrong time, oh, <laughs> so, when the public finances went crazy because of the, the the financial crash, the global financial crisis, and you know it couldn't have happened at a worse time.
2: So that dream of giving power back to the people just just drifted. It did, but it's never gone away. No, no, it's never gone away, I was just about to say the same thing.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's, it's what Boris Johnson called levelling up when they published the levelling up white paper. And again, you know, under Michael Gove in this government, there have been really valiant attempts to try and address these, these structural uh, regional inequalities and give power back mm, to the people. Mm. It's just very difficult.
2: Immensely, and it gets worse. <laughs> now, uh, 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 yeah another tricky um area of your uh, expertise is um you worked um w- promoting volunteering um on a very big, big level. This is something that's very dear to radio maria of course um how how successful were you at that um and how hard was it and how long did it take, and did it come to fruition?
0: It it was absolutely fascinating. I was lucky enough in this occasion to work with David Miliband's brother, Ed, when he was minister for civil society. And actually, I should mention his his predecessor minister, a wonderful woman called Fiona McTaggart, who was actually my my first minister when I became a senior civil servant. And it was great. These were great times, but it wasn't an odd thing for me as a civil servant to work on volunteering as a policy area for the country because so much of government is all about stopping people from doing what they shouldn't be doing and this job was all about finding ways to encourage them to do more
2: that's a great idea so so what was your role you liaised with the with the ministers and then you went out and, and set about developing the papers or that that would bring it into force or? Yeah,
0: we we, we set out a whole new framework for for charitable giving to encourage greater uh, donation and and giving to good causes. We ran a a year for the volunteer back in 2004. We we funded an organisation called V, later V Inspired, which was all about getting young people into volunteering, which really actually had a transformational impact at the time on young people's involvement in in volunteering. There there was so much that was done and it really was a a genuinely positive time for me uh, in government.
2: But what you're saying in one of um, in, in one of your notes is that England lost over nine million volunteers.
0: Yeah, yeah that's that, absolutely right.
2: Was that disenchantment or just well, nowhere
0: to go? This is all in since after 2010, as I say, you know, with a period of austerity. Um, I think people's lives. Become very tough. It's very hard to find that extra time when you, you're having to work mm-hmm. yes. all out to make so ends meet. It, yeah. And people's lives are changing anyway. The idea that people can regularly volunteer um at their scout hut or uh, for the charity shop—it's—it's it's changing quite rapidly. And and we need to catch up with that. The other, it's a real its a real challenge. For the, the, o- my the other
2: thing about that, Richard, is also police checking over. You know that's so rigid now, and oh. because of all the, you know, exploitation uh, that that's gone on um do you think that's had an effect
0: it it has had an effect I mean, of course we want people to be uh, safeguarded you know we're working with children and vulnerable adults their protection is essential but it's hard to avoid the conclusion that sometimes the bureaucracy gets in the way mm. of helping people mm-hmm. you know it should be about getting people cleared as quickly as possible to get into good roles. I've seen this myself, of course, in the church where you're to yes. desperate volunteers to do things and then you have to wait six months to yes. get your TBS clearance. It's very frustrating. So frustrating. Goodness. Um,
2: we must move on to your second piece of music or I'll be cross-examining <laughs> you all day. Um, <laughs> so does this second piece of music resonate with that time in your life? Or is it... Ah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You've got to picture me as a, an earnest young civil servant who uh, keen to make a change in the world. And I, I was lucky enough to be invited to this dinner with a famous lawyer, and I was really keen to kind of uh, you know talk policy with him and, and, and bend his ear on all sorts of things. In fact, I ended up sitting next to his wife, um, and you know after the first thirty seconds of my disappointment, we had a fantastic conversation, and she recruited me to her community choir. How I, extraordinary! Well, bear in mind, I you know I hadn't sung since my school days. But you know something, maybe say yes. I would, uh, and and the first concert was a really difficult piece written in Church Slavonic, uh, which is quite hard to pronounce. Yes, yeah. um, it was a real baptism of fire for me, but I stuck with it, and I've been singing in choirs ever since. Um, lots and lots of Requiem masses, of course, but this first piece was from Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil and you know i think it'll stay with me forever
2: can you actually pronounce it for me cuz i can't even <laughs> yes. pronounce it
0: I, I will have a go but Come i'm on. sure i'm sure my musical director at the time would cringe ninye ot push <sharp> oh <Henry>. no, <sharp> well <laughs> <she>. <laughs> we done
2: well done thank Close. you Our music choices this morning have been chosen by my guest, Richard Harris, director of Caritas Westminster. Can we return to your faith journey, Richard? Did this happen in the corridors of Whitehall or did it creep upon you over the years?
0: Well, Di, it's a sad but true fact that there's very little space for religion in modern public life, Mm. something that your listeners will know Colin Bloom has recently looked at and and certainly in the civil service any overt expression of faith is or at least was heavily frowned upon but you know over the years I repeatedly noticed that all the colleagues that I respected most had a quiet but firm faith and it was their faith that it was inspiring them and it, it inspired me. Mm, that's really really interesting so it was like a secret? Very much so. Very much so. And as you as you asked in the original question, you know, my my faith was my faith life was creeping along as part of that secret. But two decades of of singing beautiful music like the piece we just had, which you know that's the the Nun Demitis, the the Canticle of Simeon. It's just a, a gorgeous piece of music. It left an indelible mark on me. I mean, the sheer yes beauty of it. Yes,
2: and and you can't keep. That kind of joy banged up. Um, you've got, it's, there comes a point where you just have to just glory in, in in God's beauty and and what has been created around God. I do think there's a change um, socially that more people are coming out in, in terms of their faith and, you know, you know. Saying quite casually to you, know, I'm off to church or I've just got back from Mass, and you know, yes. I'm not, or it can be any denomination. Um, I think it's really, really good. I think there's a definite sort of literally coming up.
0: I think, I think you're right. I'm certainly talking to some of my. Former colleagues in the civil service, there does seem to be a greater openness to to faith in the civil service. That, that it's not something you can't talk about. Um, but you, but you're you're right. I mean, it, it's just impossible to sing beautiful pieces like panis Angelicus or or Mozart's Requiem or the Cantique de Jean Racine, Dream of Grontius. You you can't sing that sort of music and not be drawn into this sort of transcendent beauty of it. And that's mm-hmm. absolutely what happened with me. Um, I did still, of course, have my Uh, teenage atheism to overcome. (laughs) Um, Oh, of
2: course, that was... was, So you were in tandem with those two conflicting emotions.
0: Yes, in a sense, I was being drawn in by the beauty, but, you know, there was still an intellectual mountain to climb. Of course, what I didn't realise and what I hesitate to say many teenagers don't realize is that all these questions you ask yourself as a teenager, you think you're the first person to ask them and you forget that the church fathers and the doctors of the church have been dealing with those questions for, for centuries <laughs> uh, not- and, and largely resolved them. Yes. And you know, once I realized that there was no contradiction between faith and reason, everything fell into place for me. Um
2: and how on earth did you combine your hectic professional life and singing? I mean, did you just, was, was singing like twice a week um, and that fitted in, uh, or, or did, it be, did it grow bigger and bigger and take up more of your life?
0: It's always been a balance. Uh, I've, uh, very embarrassingly, I'm, I'm not going to be able to join my choir for a concert this Term, which is Handel's Dixit Dominus, another beautiful piece. Uh, because I'm so busy, but mm. largely you find the time, and it's the usual thing. It's it's a bit like um, going to the gym for exercise. You might not want to do it at the start, but when you mm. finish, you're so glad you did you did do it. Um, know, th- that's so true.
2: When you drop something, and it's um, it's always hard to start again. But then it's like the music comes back, or the you know the writing comes back, or the the muscle comes back. Yes, yeah. So um, how did you, uh, you know, uh, how did you, um, how did you make the leap to Caritas and and Social Action Network? I mean, this is, this is quite a transition. What happened?
0: Well, as my faith was growing, I was looking for more ways to express that faith and, and I think quite properly that largely started within my parish so you know as a as a collection counter and as a holy communion catechist as a reader and uh for my sins as a member of the parish pastoral council um we won't draw a veil over that last one it's very difficult um but but you know, the opportunity came out of the blue, actually. I was approached uh, by a colleague, Ben Vine, um, uh, to uh, because there's a vacancy on the board of Caritas Social Action Network. And for those of your listeners who don't know, you know, th- this is a network that covers all the uh, Caritas agencies, diocesan Caritas agencies across the country, but also all the other Catholic social action organizations like Vincent de Paul and, and so on. Oh, really?
2: So, really?
0: So it's, it's a national network body for them. Um and you know when when I was asked the question i i realized there was no way that i could refuse
2: but it sounds like all your gifts from the past and all your uh, previous work and all that uh, incredible um analytical and strategic work your brain must have been processed so well to do all this because it's 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 multi- it's multitasking isn't it
0: it is. And actually, you know, a big part of my current role was a realisation that I could use the skills that I had yeah, uh, yeah. to support Caritas Westminster. But, but you know, I, I left government in 2013, actually, with exactly that sort of ambition. Of, you know, I want to use my skills and my networks and my knowledge mm. for the things that I care about. But at that point, I hadn't really appreciated that it would be in this direction.
2: Extraordinary. God works in mysterious ways. Indeed. Right, we're on to your third piece of music, which is Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Why is this so special to you at this time in your life?
0: Well, I mean, this goes back to my hymn hymn and singing days at boarding school. I mean, uh, and it's it's important at this point in my life, but actually it's been important, as far as I can think about it, all the way through my faith life. You know, it's often said that the good hymns are just prayers set to music. And in this case, for me, it was almost the other way around. As I was particularly as I was taking those first steps towards my reconversion, the first verse of, of this hymn um, looping around in my head, and I've actually personalised it from our help to, to my help, so very, very egotistical there, but the words that really anchored me were, you know, my shelter from the stormy blast and my eternal home.
2: Beautiful, beautiful line. Let's hear it. So, Richard, you you work with uh, in your capacity and uh, working for as director of Caritas at Westminster. You work across several parishes in the diocese of Westminster. How many people are you actually working with? Um, on, I mean, is is it as many as when you're in Whitehall, or is it is it smaller groups and and more widespread?
0: It, it's hard to make a direct comparison because uh, in one sense. Caritas of Westminster covers the entire diocese of Westminster. So that's 212 parishes How across North London and and Hertfordshire. Um, but 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 of course, we don't just serve um, Catholics in the diocese. We serve all people who live and work in the diocese. So that's sort of over five and a half million people. Um, and and. It's not that we do everything ourselves, almost the opposite. We do run central services. We run a, a service for uh, students with intellectual disabilities. We run a service for women who've been subject to modern slavery and human trafficking. Mm. We run a service to uh, promote social enterprise in deprived communities. Um, but actually, we also work with parishes to support them in, in doing parish-led social action.
2: And that includes something as ordinary and everyday to any parishioner, St. Vincent de Paul. I mean, I didn't even know that that was under your umbrella. Are there other services like that?
0: To, to be very clear, they're not under my umbrella. I mean, um, they, they, of course, have existed for far longer than, than Caritas has and do amazing work. Mm. But we cooperate with them uh, yeah. and collaborate with them. I think that's a really important point. The creation of Caritas agencies in this country dates back to Pope Benedict coming over. Every other country, every other Catholic country in the world has Caritas agencies, and Britain didn't, and the Holy Father sort of politely asked, you know, where is Caritas? And there was a lot of shuffling of feet and a feeling, oh, we'd better do something about that. Mm. Uh, and so Caritas was set up. But in many ways, we're the new kids on the block. As I say, St. Vincent de Paul, um, Cardinal Hume Center, The Passage, all these wonderful organizations in, in London and Hertfordshire that do incredible work. They were there before, and and we work alongside them.
2: And you work with a, a team taking fo- uh, tackling food poverty and homelessness across North London and Hertfordshire. That must be on the increase big time now.
0: It is. It's very sad. I mean, uh, that really took off for all the wrong reasons during the pandemic. Mm, Oh, yes. But when the the pandemic ended, unfortunately, the need didn't. Um, And, yeah, so we run a a supermarket vouchers programme, which is incredibly popular, again, for for all the wrong reasons, um, and and shows no signs of abating. And, yes, we we work on um, temporary accommodation and rough sleeping, again, with partner organisations and with parishes. We also do work with um, uh, migration and refugee agencies as well.
2: And how effective is your input there? Because that seems to be sort of like a tsunami of problems.
0: Well... You know, the reason I, I was so attracted to coming to work at Caritas Westminster, because I've got to say, when, when when I was first approached about the role, and I first looked at it, I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this. You know, I, I'm a social researcher. I'm a policymaker. My, my job is to tell other people how to do their jobs better, mm. <laughs> not to do it myself <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Um, but as I looked at it, I thought, no, no, I can use my skill I can see the potential here. And, you know, it's... When when we look forward over the next 10 years, the last 10 years have been pretty traumatic, haven't they? For one reason, we, we've had austerity, yeah, we've had terrible. Brexit, we've had the pandemic, we've had all sorts of things. The next 10 years aren't going to be any better in my view. Uh, it, and we we need to do this. But I, I should stress one thing, Guy. It's not just about Caritas or any other uh, charity sort of going out and just helping the poor and the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. This is about us fulfilling our Christian duty. This is about, in a sense, evangelizing the church. This is saying, we should all want mm-hmm. to love our neighbour, and this is a very practical way that we can love our neighbour.
2: I, I I totally respect and and admire that. I just wonder how many people have got that much room in their heart left with when they're under like this list of people who you're helping under so much pressure, so much um, pain, anxiety, fear. You know how you tap into any more humanity. Um, mm. In such a time of terrible crisis, well, growing crisis. Let's not let's not make it even worse than it is.
0: It, it, it is difficult, but then you can take inspiration actually from the pandemic. Look at how communities came together in the pandemic. It That's was true. just mm. just wonderful. Now, admittedly, that you know, that was a sort of hopefully once in a lifetime event and and very traumatic for the country. But it showed the potential. It gives you a a, a glimmer of what could be. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, you're right. No, that was and also.
2: Just the joy of being able to talk to somebody, um, and the rigidity of separation and contact, and all the things that you take for granted. Yeah, I'm no. I mean, it was it was a, a changing point in in society, really. But how do you um, how do you manage your team? Uh, for example, you've, you're doing safe houses for women and. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're working with modern slavery and human trafficking, and there's so, so much that you do. How do you delegate? You must be very good at that.
0: <laughs> well, again, I, I'm blessed that my predecessor, uh, John Colby, did a fantastic job recruiting an amazing team. Um, so uh, in that sense, I've got a really strong team in place who are doing incredible work. You know, my job is to hopefully uh, continue to build on that and, and, uh, and, and build it out. And as I say, I see lots of potential for us to do more. Um but, but, you know, without wanting to get very sort of, uh, I don't know, a prosaic and managerial about it, you know, my job is not to run um, the safe house or to run the yes, uh, yes. centre for, for and, I, and I would be a disaster at that if I was to try. You know, my my job is to, to make sure that collectively we're supporting all of those who live and work in the diocese, who have spiritual and material needs, and we're doing everything we can to meet those needs.
2: Thank God. We're up to your final piece of music, Richard, Every Grain of Sand by Bob Dylan. Why this?
0: There's not much left to say here. I've loved Bob Dylan, actually, since my rebellious teenage atheist days. Um, I just didn't realise back then how much his music was steeped in in Christian imagery. Um, I realised his vocal style isn't everyone's taste. But this particular song, Every Grain of Sand, if you can get past his his voice and, and hear the words, it's just a wonderful piece of theology.
2: I know, I love it. Let's hear it.
4: In the time of my confession In the hour of my deepest need
2: Bob Dylan. Richard Harris from Caritas, thank you so, so much for being with us this morning and talking about your fascinating work.
0: Thank you so much, Di, for the opportunity to talk. I've got to say it's felt very strange uh, and egotistical to talk about myself, but I've been very grateful. No, we've learned a lot.
2: And I'd love it if you could say the Caritas prayer as we finish,
0: please. That's that's very kind of you. Thank you, Di. Okay. Heavenly Father, Help us to see with your eyes, to judge with the loving heart of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Spirit, to put love into action. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Songs in the Wilderness. Goodbye for now.